laundry, right? Like, oh my gosh, it's back to school. I don't have my lessons plans ready to go. And um, we all saw that photo of me, so we might understand why I might have some middle school terror dreams as well. Uh, <clears throat> so a bit more about me. Steph started out sharing. Uh, I'm a master's degree student at Bethel Seminary. I'm starting my fourth year. I grew up in Mountain View. Uh, grew up in Mountain View. Yeah, go Knights. Um, and I also went to Bethel, where I graduated and decided to not do that at all and moved to Indianapolis to teach, where I lived for five years. Yes, Indianapolis people, great. I taught for five, or I taught and I was a youth pastor for five years total. Uh, and then also, J.D., if you want to throw up the other photo that we have, uh, myself and others from my church started an intentional neighboring community uh, in Indianapolis. So this is a picture of us at the house. Yes, we did live and it looked like that, although the inside was done. We renovated it up from the foundation up. I mean, we redid everything. But today, this house is completely painted, done. A family from our church lives there. And it's part of a network of other homes in the neighborhood that gives back and serves uh, the community in need. So when we're talking about the art of neighboring, I am so honored to be here today uh, to share my heart for our neighbors and um, some of my experiences and stories. So as we get started this morning, let, us pray. let me pray for us. Bow your heads with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here today to learn from your word and worship your name in freedom. I pray that you open our eyes and our ears to what it is you have for us to learn today. I pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit, not only within me as I share your word, but with all of us here in this room. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. In your name, amen. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, or this is your first time here at Mill City, this is our third sermon in a series called The Art of Neighboring, where we are focusing on what has come to be known as the two great commandments, recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus expresses that there are no greater commandments than to love God, and love your neighbor. And so, the big question we are addressing in this series is, what if Jesus actually meant to love our actual neighbors? Novel idea. And we're defining neighbor as the people we spend our most time with. So whether that's at work, in our community, where we live, uh, at the gym, where we learn or recreate, here at Mill City, we, this is a core focus for us. And many of you are already very much involved in your neighborhoods. Whether that's through a missional community or an organization, you're serving the Northeast area or wherever you happen to live. Two weeks ago, Pastor Michael brought Roland and Michelle up on stage and they shared their story about how they've started dinners in their townhouse neighborhood and the ways that God has used those dinners to bring their community together to care for one another and know each other. It's an absolute beautiful picture of transformation and um, the way that God can use us to impact our neighborhood. A lot of you do things just like that. That's not the only story that we have here at Mill City. Loving our community in the name of Jesus is core to who we are here because we know that we can't live out our mission to love God if we are not also growing in our ability to love our neighbors. However, if you've 
practice the art of neighboring for any length of time, you'll know that being a good neighbor for the long haul is not always the easiest thing to do, right? Opening our lives up to people, specifically people that we don't get to choose and maybe aren't the easiest to love or maybe a little weird or annoying, can get really uncomfortable. Like the time when I traded my Pokemon cards with the neighbors across the street, and because, you know, I maybe have some woo or some entrepreneurship skills, I convinced them to trade all of their holographic cards to me for a couple of my non-holographic cards, right? Uh, sorry that I'm just really smart. Uh, but I got home and I was, uh, you know, going off to my little brother, all these new cards I got, and my mom saw, and she asked me about it. I'm like, they traded. We, we had a fair trade. You know, we talked this through. Uh, phone rings, it's the neighbor's mom, and she's reporting the fact that, you know, what I've done. And so my mom's like, Stephanie Ann, you need to go across the street and trade back those cards. And so, you know, I like go down to the mailbox, which was our meeting area, and we had to do a little back, and it was awkward, and it was comfortable, and we didn't really hang out that much after that. <laughs> and so last few weeks, you've experienced your own version of a Pokemon trade go wrong, right? Like, maybe you've taken the first step of introducing yourself to a new neighbor, and now whenever you come home, they're waiting to talk to you, and you are stuck in an hour-long conversation about their cat's new outfit, right? Yeah? Or, or maybe um, that new neighbor that you met uh, asked to borrow a lawnmower a month ago. And you're like, great, like we can share, you know, communities, share our tools, etc. But now they're asking for a ride to work. And just yesterday they knocked on your door asking for money because they're in like really dire straits. And you're finding yourself in this place of how do I love this person, but now I'm starting to feel uncomfortable with how much they need and what's appropriate for me. And maybe you come from a late night small group at church to find a car on fire in your backyard because that happened to me. <laughs> and my neighborhood, where I lived in Indianapolis. Weird stuff happens with people in our lives. And we've all heard and experienced horror stories like this, stories that point to the negative of getting to know our neighbors and cause us to close our blinds, lock our doors, and hide behind our fences. Neighboring is no small feat, nor is it easy. But if loving our neighbors is our greatest commandment, it should also be our greatest priority, regardless of how difficult it is. So then, how do we do this thing called the art of neighbor for the long haul? What do we do when our really good intentions turn into an unhealthy, awkward situation with the people in our lives? I can promise you that neighboring will always be a bit awkward, but it doesn't need to be unhealthy. The parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most famous parables of Jesus. A lot of us have heard this story before, and it's found in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus uses this story to illustrate to his audience, who is my neighbor? But I also think that there are three illustrations in this parable that can help us learn and reflect upon what defines healthy, long-term neighboring. And so, we are going to look at Luke 10, verse 25. If you have a Bible with you, if you have your phone with a Bible app, please open it. The text will also be on the screen if you would rather just read it from the screen, or if you'd like to close your eyes and listen to my narration. 
<clears throat> I'll try to change up the voices to, you know, make it in. But Luke 10, verse 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in pure Jesus fashion, Jesus replies and he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him for dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I wonder who we see ourselves personally in this story. If we were to close our eyes, and listen to it read, who would we see ourselves being in this story? Who would we see the Samaritan or the priest or the Levite being in this story? To truly understand the gravity of what Jesus is saying in this parable, we need a little bit of context, okay? First of all, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a well-traveled but super dangerous road. It was like known to be the, like, bad place to be. It's where all the bad guys hung out. Um, it was a mountain pass, so Jerusalem is up in the, in the mountains, high point. It's where the temple is. Jericho is more in the valley, closer to the Jordan River. You can look this up on the map. I'm not making it up. The road cuts through the mountains. There's cliffs and caves on either side. It's where the thieves and robbers would, and pirates, right? Like, first century pirates would hang out in these caves and attack people who were on this road going between Jerusalem and Jericho. So the fact that Jesus sharing this story, this, like, particular situation happened a lot. So it's not a surprise to them, because they were used to hearing things like this. However, the man who is attacked, and this is something I want us to pay specific attention to, the man who is attacked and robbed and laying in the street to die, it is very likely, based on how Jesus is telling the story, that this man is Jewish, because he tells us that he's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Jerusalem was where the temple was. So more than likely, he's coming from worshiping the temple, and he's going back to Jerusalem, or Jericho. And this is significant because the two men that pass him, both the priest and the Levite, 
were also Jewish. And not only were they Jewish, but they were the religious leaders, right? The guys that are supposed to know all the moral codes and do everything perfectly. How often in our culture do we put these leaders or our, you know, like, pastors, etc., on pedestals? And so in this story, Jesus specifically is telling his Jewish audience that a Jewish man is dying in the street and two Jewish men who the audience would expect to be the heroes of the story are passing by and not stopping. And then Jesus hits him with a one-two punch because he goes on to say that a Samaritan man is the one who stops. The Samaritan man is the one who takes pity and cares for the man in need. You see, in Jesus' day, Samaritans were the most hated people in that area. Okay? He would have been the least likely to this Jewish audience to be the one to be the hero. I wonder who in our world today and in our culture we would consider to be a Samaritan. And so this parable that Jesus is telling us, the Samaritan man is the one that stops. His Jewish listeners are probably a little confused and maybe feeling a little convicted. Um, and uh, Jesus, therefore, is challenging the beliefs and expectations of the people that are listening to his story, but specifically the expert in the law who's asking him, who is my neighbor? Because we read in verse 29 that the man wanting to justify himself is asking Jesus to define who his neighbor is in the hope that, oh, you're going to tell me that my neighbor is someone I already love. You're going to tell me that my neighbor is someone just like me, who thinks like me and acts like me and looks like me, who's in my own, you know, racial identity or my own religion. Easy. I'm on my way to eternal life because I can do that. I can do that well. That's not difficult for me. But to this man's dismay, and to be quite honest, maybe our own, right? Jesus states that anyone who crosses our path is our neighbor, even those we've been taught to hate. What does this story about the Good Samaritan have to do with being a good neighbor for the long haul? Here are three lessons that I think this story uh, tells us uh, and, and explains to us, shows us, and uh, how we can live out this awkward thing of the art of neighboring for the long haul, but in a healthy way. Number one, fences. <clears throat> fences are super common structures in our neighborhoods, right? We see them everywhere. They're a, a boundary line that marks and helps us distinguish what is ours and what is not. It keeps things in that are good. It keeps things out that are bad. We see them all the time. In the story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan man is considered the good neighbor because he's the one that stops to take care of the man who's dying in the road. But if you notice, and I had not really saw this before when I've read this story, the Good Samaritan also establishes healthy boundaries with the man that he's helping. Uh, so let's read those verses again. Is there, a, J.D., get um, verse 33 back on the screen? <clears throat> awesome. Uh, so it says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins of denarii and gave, him to the in gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
So what did the Samaritan actually do? Let's walk through it. Number one, he saw the man in the road, he took pity on him, and he went to him. So he sacrificed his time. This man had somewhere to be. He had a donkey, maybe he had different goods or things, or maybe he was going from the temple back home. He was on a journey, he was on this road to begin with. On top of that, this man has clearly been beaten by the robbers that you know are there because it's a dangerous place to be. And so not only is he stopping to help the man, he's sacrificing his time and his safety because he could be robbed just the same. Number two, after he stops, he bandages the man's wounds using his own oil and wine. He's using his own expensive resources to help this man. He's sacrificing his stuff. Three, he placed the man on his own donkey. So they have to continue. It's not like the inn is across the street and he just has to drag him over there, right? Like he has to get him to the inn. And so he puts the guy on his donkey, foregoing his own comfort, walks the donkey to the inn so he can take care of the man. Four, he brought him to an inn. Five, he took care of him for one night. One night. And then what I really wanted to focus on, the last part, then the next day, he paid for someone else to take care of the man better than he could, and he went about his life. The Samaritan carried on with his journey. Although the Samaritan sacrificed his time and his resources and his comfort in order to be a good neighbor to the dying man, after he is sure the man is set up to be successful and is taken care of, the Samaritan leaves. The Samaritan did not do everything that he could have done, which I think is just sort of a nuance as to how we maybe see this story. He could have done so much more, and he already did so much. <clears throat> but he did enough in the moment, he did all that he could in the moment, in order to empower the man to get back on his own two feet. I'm not sure about you, but as a Christian, I think sometimes I can live in this place where I feel like because I love people and because I care and because I want to love like Jesus, sometimes I allow people to take advantage because I care about them so much. But then I find myself upriver without a paddle and in situations where I'm not sure what to do and now I feel like I've created this dependent relationship with somebody that perpetrates a sort of victim-savior complex. It doesn't allow the people who are in need to own their own responsibilities or their own circumstances. And that doesn't mean we don't help, but I, sometimes the way we help can do more hurt. <clears throat> if we are going to practice the art of neighboring for the long haul, we need to have fences or healthy boundaries. Now, metaphorically speaking, uh, there's a spectrum of fence available, right? Uh, here, you know, you go to Menards and the eight-foot private cedar fence is on sale. It doesn't let anything out and it doesn't let anything in. And then you got this over here where you have no fence whatsoever and people can enter in and out however they feel. So, when we're looking at the eight-foot fence versus no fence at all, it's sort of like this, this metaphor we use at Mill City a lot of the two ditches, but we're looking for the middle of the road. If you're over here and you're a person that operates an eight-foot fence world, are there are barriers that keep you from interacting with your neighbors and, from, and for loving them, or maybe expressing your own needs to your neighbors and friends? And if you're over here in no fence world, 
Are you taken advantage of because you're compassionate but to an unhealthy extent? Are you extra needy? Do you not have safe boundaries, healthy boundaries? We're looking for the road. <clears throat> and so I ask you, where do you find yourself on that spectrum? Are you someone who lacks boundaries altogether? Are you someone that has maybe too high of boundaries, too thick of boundaries? Jesus reminds us in this story that although we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, we are not to do so at the expense of losing ourselves in the process. Which leads me then to sort of point two, lesson two, focus. We cannot be all things to all people. And so we have to practice the art of focus. In the story, both the priest and the Levite are closed off from engaging with the man dying in the road. We read that they, in fact, actually pass around him. They don't want anything to do with him. They're avoiding him. Their avoidance highlights the fact that in their heart, they are not at a place to engage, and they're not willing to be a neighbor to this man. As we engage our neighbors at work, in our other communities, next door, we will more than likely find ourselves interacting with different people who have a different affinity for wanting to engage with us. Relationships, however, are a two-way street. We cannot make someone come to our community bonfire, right? You can't force someone to share their life with you or share their stories with you. We cannot live our lives thinking that we must be all things to all people because we don't have the capacity to do that. The art of neighboring is titled the way it is because neighboring is in fact art. Part of neighboring is recognizing who the people are of peace in your neighborhood or in your community, who are open and willing to interact with you, who welcomes conversation, who invites your home as well. <clears throat> Although a person's coolness or distance from wanting to engage with us is not a free pass, we're called to love all people, and all of our neighbors, it might be a sign that they're not going to be your new best friend on the block, right? And so our non-best friends on the block leads me to my third and final point and lesson from this story of the Good Samaritan. Forgive. If we are going to be good neighbors for the long haul, we have to learn to forgive and ask for forgiveness. Can you imagine if that man who was dying in the middle of the road saw that particular priest or that particular Levite like a week later in, this, in Jericho or on the same road? Do you think that they would recognize each other? I wonder how they would feel in that moment. The fact that the Samaritan took pity and showed mercy to the dying Jewish man is indicative of the fact that he had to first forgive him. And I say that because at this time, in a racially and politically charged region of the area, the Samaritan likely had preconceived notions and ideas about the Jewish man in the road. At a time where bitterness, anger, or resentment could have dictated the Samaritan's actions, he chose to sacrificially love the Jewish man. Without an active lifestyle of forgiveness, we cannot begin to love our neighbors as ourselves because we will fall victim to thinking that we're better than them, or that we're more important, or that we're right all the time. Our ability to forgive is crucial if we are going to be good neighbors for the long haul. And so I pose to you, who is someone in your community, in your neighborhood, or at work, that you need to forgive?
or is there someone that you need to ask for forgiveness from? I'm going to ask the band and the communion service to come forward as we close. Uh, The art of neighboring is no small endeavor. Loving our neighbors as ourselves is awkward, right? It's hard, it's painstaking work at times. And to the dismay of many of us and that expert of the law who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, we don't get to choose who will be our neighbor. What we can choose, however, is how we interact with them, how we obey God's call to love our neighbors and engage with them as he places them in our life, but in a healthy way that allows us to continue the art of neighboring for the long haul. As we enter into this time of worship and communion, let us reflect upon the ways that Jesus leads us in the art of neighboring through his ultimate sacrifice on the cross as our Lord and Savior. It is because of Jesus' death that we are able to live in freedom, and it is because of his um, abounding love that we are able to love God and love one another. Are you ready to accept or give that kind of love to your neighbors? Where in your life do you need to give authority to Jesus Christ so that you can live fully in what God has intended for you? Uh, Anyone who is a follower of Jesus uh, is welcome to participate in communion here at Mill City. You will come down these two aisles, uh, meet the communion servers, You'll take a piece of bread, you'll dip it in the cup, uh, and then I think we'll have uh, people from our prayer team available. If you're in need of prayer, they'll be lined up along the sides of the auditorium. Uh, let, let pray. God, we thank you for the way in which you share stories with us, like the Good Samaritan, that teach us what it is to be a good neighbor. Lord, we thank you for the, what you've done for us on the cross, for the love that you've shown us. And we pray, God, that as we enter into our neighborhoods and our workplaces, that you would help us to be healthy, strong, courageous, loving neighbors to whoever it is that you place in our path. In your name, amen.